From the east side to the west, this is From the Land, the Cleveland Sports and More podcast. I'm your host, Jason Gerber, and tonight's show might suck. We're going to talk Cleveland sports, but a lot of it won't even be about actual sports. Things will lighten up a little as we head on the road to talk NFL storylines and the most c***y things that happened during the sports week. Then we'll go off the field and talk about the sad passing of a legend on the mic. I'm joined tonight by two of the best ever. Co-host Phil Denko is here again. Hey, Gerbs. Uh, tonight's show will not suck. You got cut in before we That's even got true. into the first segment. It's, it's a personal best. It's a personal best. And thanks for having me. You bet, buddy. Pest control technician Chuck Rambaldo is here. That's a downer. I'm ready to hear it, though. Another technician. Chuck, this is the number 12 ranked worst job on Indeed.com, and that's the kind of night it's going to be. This fantastic opportunity requires you to trap, relocate, spray, poison, or otherwise eliminate animals or insects. As a bonus, you also get to work with hazardous chemicals and pesticides. Think your job is the worst? Think again at Indeed.com. So here we go. Let's get started at home with our Guardians recapping the week for the Cleveland Guardians. And boy, that almost went real bad. Guards played a nice series against the Diamondbacks early in the week, but learned what it's like behind the woodshed for two games against the Astros before totally redeeming themselves with two straight wins to close out the weekend. The guards wrap another week with a winning record, sit at 56 and 52, still one really annoying game out of first place. Great to get a split with the Astros this weekend, but did you see anything that leads you to believe the guards can beat the Astros in a playoff series if that were ever to come about? Hmm. Uh, That's a good question. So let's assume we're in a five game series against the Astros and we're and we're split two to two because we just did that. Right. So here we go. Winner take all game five. (laughs) What I didn't see against the Astros in those four games was Shane Bieber on the mound. So there we go. We've got Shane Bieber coming back for game five. So, yeah, I do feel like we could take him. Why not? No way. Thank I'm you. I'm down with you, Gerb, on this. I was, yeah, I was trying to change the mood, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And I, I appreciate the fact that you said Bieber didn't go. They gave up, what, 15 in the first two games and one in the last two. So it was a nice series. And it was a uh, it felt great the last two days. But no, I, I don't think if if this team makes it to playoff baseball, they have any shot against the Yankees or the Astros. You just see the difference. In the depth, the Astros marched out like three great starting pitchers in a row, and they have a couple guys that are still injured and are coming back. And so that pitching staff in, I think, the next two weeks is going to start putting out a six-man rotation for the rest of the season. That's ridiculous. And we've got to keep going down into the minors and finding these guys to come up for spot starts who aren't ready. But it's not just the starting pitching. It's the lineup, too. And the bullpen, like at every facet of the game, those guys were fantastic. And the only way we beat them was because Quantrill and McKenzie threw gems back to back. And then we've got like Class A on the back end and we've got Luke Molly and all of the power that he brings to the table. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe if we play him in a playoff series three years from now, Maley will hit his second home run (laughs) and keep us in it. But 
for as much as we love what the the Guardians are doing this year, there is a different look to a team like the Astros than than what the guards put out on the field. That's all there is to it. Well, that's all the good news about the Guardians, fellas. Uh, why don't we talk about some of the bad news from this week? Franmil Reyes, who struck out in almost half of his at-bats this season, was designated for assignment, and there's a really good chance, I think, that he's done with the guards. And at the trade deadline, the Guardians did not make any moves to add players to the team. So our first ever importance of Arnold scale, scale of one to five, one being Predator 2, starring Danny Glover, Five being Kindergarten <laughs> Cop 2, starring Dolph Lundgren. Which of these stories was the most disappointing, and where would you rank it? Oh, God. oh The Fran Mill thing is the most disappointing. And I, I should probably get it out of the way about the deadline, because we talked for a few weeks, and I thought, this team should make a move. They're, they're in it. And then you kind of think about it even deeper today, and, and you make a really good point. We agreed, Gerb, is that it, it doesn't matter if they would have added one or two guys. They're they're not closing the gap with the Astros or the Yankees. They're committed to young players. And you see that. They can field a full starting team with the guys they've called up this year who made their debuts. And that's okay. That's what they're committed to. So I'm committed to that too. And it's not like they're not a fun team to watch. They are. I don't think they expected to be where they're at right now. And they're going to ride it out. doesn't mean they can't win the division. doesn't mean they can't win or, or get in wild card wise. But it's apples and oranges with the top of the American League to where the Guardians are at. But the Fran Mill thing is more disappointing on the scale. Man, both of those sound terrible movies. I don't think I even... I like Dolph Rungen a little bit more than Danny Glover, so maybe I'd go that way. But the Fran Mill thing, it's a guy who, at least I thought, and I think a lot of fans did, that could possibly carry this team if he had to at some point, if he got hot, or if, if with his power numbers. But you, you said a guy who's... 40 some percent of the time he's striking out uh, and there's got to be something internally and i know we talked about that he didn't want to lose weight and all that kind of stuff so there might be some issues there that we'll never know about but to me it's a disappointment a guy who starts the year as your cleanup hitter who you think is going to just mash um when he's not striking out and it just never happens so for the scale i guess it's a four more towards dolph lundgren but i don't i don't know if it applies right to your scale so i'm just disappointed in it no you got it you got it. there's a lot of interpretation that you're allowed in this one okay i'm gonna get the scale out of the way first i'm gonna assume that dolph Lund i didn't even know there was a kindergarten cop two until just now <laughs> so i'm gonna assume the dolph lundgren kindergarten cop two is way more disappointing because i watched predator with danny glover and it wasn't you know arnold-esque but it it was no kindergarten cop too, that's for sure, I guess. Uh, so higher number, more disappointed. I'm going to put it at a four as well, and it's Fran Mill. Trade deadline stuff, years go by, and it's kind of what our franchise does. Some Sometimes there's a, a hall of young players, and sometimes they just don't do anything, and this is one of those years because we're full of young players. But Fran Mill, he hit over 30 home runs last year. Yeah. And two years before that, I think. You know, the last two the last two full seasons in terms of games, he he was a 30 home run guy. And just to see how far he fell this year, and he looked clueless at the plate all season. There'd be glimmers like, all right, he, he got a couple hits in a game, but it would fade so fast. So definitely a, a four out of five in the disappointment scale. Fran Mill, I feel bad for that guy. I, I, he's Someone will pick him up. I think that's a, that's a guy because of his potential, probably won't clear waivers. Someone will grab him and and see what they can do with him i think uh, so his days in cleveland are probably over completely disappointing we needed that we needed a power hitter in the middle of that lineup this year just got worse for that guy 
Fran Mill for me too, and I would put him at the four end of the scale. Uh, Kindergarten Cop 2 is way more disappointing because none of us knew it existed. <laughs> at least that Danny Glover movie. I might have seen that in the theater when it came out. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like that bad. But at the beginning of last season, Chuck called him a legit windmill. And Fran Mill proved yeah. us wrong all season last year. Like, he still struck out a lot. But, like, the way the power hitters do. And you thought, man, all he has to do is take another step forward, and he is going to be a dangerous bat in this lineup, and that's going to really help them score runs, which we always knew was going to be their biggest challenge this year. He did the opposite most of the year. It really is surprising to see how how he fell that way. And maybe it's that thing where it was his second year in the American League, and maybe they just had the scouting on him, and they knew what to do, and he just could never adjust maybe wasn't part of what they want in the culture of the team anymore. I don't know. As far as the trade deadline, it's one of those things. It's like just because they don't make a move doesn't mean they didn't care about winning. It may have just been that there wasn't a move to make. You know, this team has always been really good at making those deals. At some point, you got to trust, I think, that if they decide not to make a move, it's because it was a bad one. Somebody wanted too much or they were going to get a player that wasn't going to fit the system or something like that or fit what they wanted to do. And so they don't they don't make the move. And I agree with Chuck. The other thing is, is unless we added like Soto and Otani, we weren't catching up to the Yankees and the Astros. (laughs) And I don't think we were getting those moves made. So disappointing. They didn't find something to do to maybe help. And I think we saw how this weekend, how a little more depth would have helped them out. But uh, I don't think it was a bad move not to do it because there just might not have been the option out there or the move out there for them to make. Moving on to next week, the guards hit the road for a week with two scheduling anomalies, an off day and no double headers. (laughs) When they actually get around to playing, they have three games in Motown against the Tigers and three in Toronto. Tigers bad, Toronto good, over under guards wins three and a half. I'm going to go over. I think it's another four win week for the guards going four and two some way, somehow. Ditto. I'm, I'm going over as well. They're still playing good baseball, man. And you just beat a really good team twice. Uh, so I hope that carries through where you beat up enough on the Tigers and then, you know, get one in Toronto. I like it. I'm with you guys. I'm going to go over too. I actually think they can win both these series. Uh, Toronto is good, but not great. And actually not playing fantastic since the break. So I'll take the guards to take two from each of those teams at least. So that's enough guardians. Let's move on to the real fun. 13 shades of Brown, our 13 week preview of the Browns upcoming season. There's only five weeks to go before the first game. So let's make sure we don't talk about anything fun tonight. Deshaun Watson, (laughs) his six game suspension was announced Monday. The NFL appealed on Wednesday on Thursday, Goodell appointed the kid that dressed up as Ron Washington to hear the appeal. <laughs> On Monday, six games probably led to a sigh of relief all around Brown's world. What are your thoughts on the week as it relates to Deshaun Watson and as it moved forward? Uh, hurry up and wait again, I guess. Six sounded good. And the Players Association put out that statement, I think, Sunday night. We talked about it last week, saying they wouldn't challenge it, so they must have thought something good was coming, and it was good enough. And you knew Goodell probably would. So, man, I always thought that at some point, the NFL is going to get what they want out of this suspension. In six, in their eyes, isn't enough. And there's there's a lot of 
bigger issues to it too. I know the collective bargaining thing. I've, I've listened to too much about this, to be honest, over the last week and even the months before this with, with people thinking what he was going to get. So I'm to a point now where I just, I just want to know, I just want to know what it is. If it's 10, if it's a full year, whatever it is, can we just do it and get it done with? So uh, we can start talking about fun things again. What was the goddamn question? (laughs) (laughs) Just what were your thoughts on the week? As it relates to Deshaun Watson, you know, initially when six was was thrown out there, I thought, "Wow, all right, that's uh, we we thought six to eight. We kept saying six to eight. I'm like, all right, great, six is six is good. Uh, I start thinking like a Browns fan rather than someone that had any thoughts or feelings about what this young man is accused of doing. And I thought, all right, six games, go three and three. We're good. We're a playoff team. Let's go. You know, that's that's how the week started. And then as it went on. I was slapped back into reality. And this is a collective bargaining agreement that they agreed to. That's the point of the agreement. Yeah. So this yeah. process, they can complain all they want. This is the process they agreed to. So I agree with Chuck in that. Why would anyone ever think in this situation or in this process that the NFL just won't get what they want? That's exactly how this process works. Goodell could have just could have seen the appeal himself. He could have. That's part of the collective bargaining agreement, right? Like he could have sat there on his leather recliner that he tried to give away in Cleveland a couple of years and listen to people argue and say, nah, yeah, you're out for the year. You're out for the year. And oh, by the way, the Browns, you know, they knew what they were getting into, right? Like they knew what they were signing up for and, and this is it. So I just so happen to be a Browns fan. So I hate this for so many reasons. So as the week ended, I, I didn't feel good about it. I, I felt that for whatever reason, I felt like we were leaning more towards the bulk of the season, in which case you're either Jacoby Brissett is your guy or you're starting to go after another quarterback, which is crazy because, as you mentioned, the season starts in five weeks. I was really happy with the six. I felt that that was a number that made sense. Mm-hmm. It was a significant number for the NFL. It's a small enough number that it wasn't going to derail his season or the Brown season. Uh, it made sense if you took the time to read her full opinion, which I did. It made sense in the way that she came up with it. And she pointed out in her opinion that this was the highest non-violent punishment that a player had ever received from the NFL. So, okay, man, this is a smart judge who puts the whole picture in context and says, this is how this makes sense. And that was good. And then he appealed it. Goodell appealed it or the NFL appealed it, whatever. And. I was like, I was like down. I was like, oh Same. God, this sucks. <laughs> you know, we're going to still deal with this and they're just going to get what they want. But I'll tell you what, that I was actually um, happy also to see that he assigned it to somebody else, because I think that means that it's not just going to be a rubber stamp for the NFL, that it wouldn't just be like Goodell being there and listening to everybody and then saying 12 games. I actually think that this makes the system look a little bit more legitimate and it appears more fair, at least outwardly right now than it would have otherwise. From my perspective, you know what? You have an appellate right in the process. You use it, you test it out. You say, Hey, let's roll the dice and see what happens. And maybe, maybe yet another really smart lawyer is going to look at this and say, there's not enough here to take away a season from this guy. Maybe it should be a fine. Maybe, maybe it's eight. I'm actually more confident now that it'll it'll remain a reasonable number than I was when it was first appealed. 
So we'll see. I don't think there's anything wrong with the NFL exercising its right to appeal just to see what happens. That's what these processes are for. Uh, and that's why we have. Yeah. Well, I feel better already. Thank you, Gers. I, I, this is your world. And uh, yeah, I should have. Yeah. I should. And you know you what? Like if, if it comes <laughs> to a decision week. that's bad, Watson is going to sue. He's going to seek an injunction and he will hmm. be able to delay the suspension. I think for sure, at least for a period of time. So then the suspension won't take effect. A court will enjoin the NFL from suspending him, and he will keep playing until that case is resolved or for some reason the injunction is lifted. That's what's going to come from the Players Association and from Watson if Ron Washington <laughs> comes down and issues a heavy penalty. Anyway, still not a really fun week, so hopefully this gets resolved so, like Chuck said, we can get back to having a good time. But, fellas, that's... The end of our at-home segment. Hopefully, it's the end of the bad stuff we have to talk about for the rest of the night. Why don't we take a quick break, shake this off, and have some fun? Welcome back, fellas, to our second segment. We'll head out on the road, and we will start with NFL training camp storylines, and it will be all about the quarterbacks. Let's look around the league and see what's going on in other cities with their quarterbacks. And we'll start with Patrick Mahomes, who lost Tyreek Hill in the offseason, and Aaron Rodgers, who lost Devontae Adams in the offseason. Which guy will struggle the most without their number one weapon? Wow, that's a really good Coming question. in hot to um, start the segment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, that's... I guess my initial thought is this. I think um, Rodgers will struggle more without Devontae Adams because that was a duo that even when they double teamed that dude, it, it was unstoppable. Whereas what Tyreek brought to the Chiefs was something as a, kind of a, a you know an X factor, so to speak. Mahomes is that quarterback that I don't know if he had a favorite or has a favorite. Like that guy just gets the ball to guys in any angle, any position, whatever, overhand, underhand. So I think they'll both be hurt by the lack of that talent at the wide receiver position. But of the two, I think uh, our buddy Rogers might be looking around <laughs> midseason, season thinking like, huh, you know what would have been nice this year? A number one wide receiver. <laughs> but I do have all this money. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, there's that. I want to say Patrick Mahomes only because – Aaron Rodgers is now I'm I'm starting to like him more. I don't know if you did you see how he showed up to camp this year as Nicolas yeah. Cage and Connor. Yeah. Hey. Beautiful. And then he admits like, "Hey, psychedelics really helped me out these past 2 years." So, he must be taking a lot of mushrooms in the offseason, but feels right here. Rodgers struggles more just because Mahomes has Kelsey and he made what, what a great quarterback does, which we've never really seen here in Cleveland ma makes everybody better. Uh, and I think Mahomes has, has done that. You have their fourth wide receiver who probably had eight or nine touchdown catches last year. And you can kind of plug in dudes there. He's they're both really great, but I think the chiefs have a little more weaponry at the skill position. So I think Rogers probably is the one who misses out more as the season goes on. I could almost go either way on this. I'm actually going to go with Mahomes. Just because I think Tyreek Hill was such a unique player because he was so fast that he could disrupt an entire defense all by himself, even if he wasn't getting the ball. And that created so many opportunities for other guys. And if those opportunities disappear because you are not replacing that speed, it does not come in every draft. You cannot find that guy wherever you want to every season. You, you lost something very, very unique in that. Losing that disruptive player 
out there is going to change the way that offense runs a little bit. I think it's going to be Mahomes. I also kind of think Rodgers has been doing this for so long. He's shown he can do it when he doesn't have a mountain of talent around him. It's almost like he's done this before he can do it again type of thing. But it's really, really close. I mean, I don't think anybody likes having their number one receiver leave to go to another team. That, that's not going to help anybody be better, except for maybe when OBJ left the Browns. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, we're not going backwards. We're not looking backwards. We're looking forwards. Wow. So Always bringing up old shit. <laughs> So tell me which NFL team is having the worst training camp quarterback competition. We'll start in Pittsburgh, where the Steelers have a competition described by a reporter as uninspiring to say the least, pitting Mitch Trubisky versus Kenny Pickett versus Mason Rudolph. We can go to Carolina, where first-round pick Baker Mayfield is battling first-round pick Sam Darnold. Or we can go to Seattle where Geno Smith, who is 19 and 26 as a starter, is battling Drew Locke, who is 9 and 15 as a starter. Seattle doesn't concern me. I don't care. They'll be on Fox like three times. I don't, <laughs> I don't care. Unless I get auto-drafted in a, the worst fantasy league ever, a lot of Seahawks. I have some <laughs> yeah. interest in what's going on in Carolina just <laughs> yeah. because I'm still going to root for Baker Mayfield to, to turn his career around. I'll root for that guy. But I live in Steeler country, man. And it's fun to hear the excuses that their fans are making. Like, don't sleep on Mason Rudolph. Uh, okay. <laughs> or like how terrible Kenny Pickett's looked at camp. Like how far behind he is, the curve of what they thought he would be. So I'm all for how terrible that team could possibly be this year because of their quarterback controversy. I haven't heard anything about Mitch Trubisky. Nada. All I've heard is that Mason Rudolph is the man. I mean, I've seen a few games where he's actually started. I'm here to tell you, he is not the man. So I'm all for that. I'm happy about it. <laughs> I just love the Pittsburgh fans trying to talk themselves right. into him. I love it. I love it. It is. We've been there before, <laughs> man. I've talked myself into a lot of bad Cleveland Indians baseball teams <laughs> over the years going a long way. <laughs> um, so I'm actually, that that's the best thing I've heard so far tonight. Yep. That's fantastic. <laughs> Go Mason Rulov. All right, Phil, what about you? In terms of what the future holds, the worst one is the Seahawks, but they, they know what they have right now. They're in full rebuild. Like they, they're, they're choosing between two guys that are going to basically get them a top five pick next year. And that's what they want. So I don't know if that's really, I mean, it's bad as, as a fan base but they know what they signed up for there. I think the worst battle between quarterbacks is happening in Pittsburgh. They have some hope in Kenny Pickett, right? Because there's an unknown there. It's an unknown. Yeah. He's a rookie. He's looked awful. And if they expected Kenny Pickett to come in there and pick up Ben Roethlisberger's jockstrap and carry it forward, I mean, what, what, the, what are you talking about? Like, he might turn out to be an okay quarterback. That's going to take some time. That's going to take some time and development. Here's hoping he doesn't, you know, as a Browns fan. But then we know what we know what we've seen with with Mitchell Trubisky, uh, hometown hero and all, and and Mason Rudolph and those two guys. That's a that's a six and eleven team trotting out there is what that is with either of those two guys. So they're in a rough spot because it it's just what everyone except for franchises like the Steelers have to deal with after getting yeah. rid of a starting quarterback. Right? It's just that that's what you have to do. Like you're gonna be shitty for a while because. Your Hall of Fame quarterback just retired, and now you've got to replace him with Mason Rudolph is winning the competition. Yeah. Good Lord. Like, I, I hope he wins the competition. And then down in Carolina, like I, I feel like at, at some point, Baker probably wins that battle, assuming he's healthy, because we've, we've all seen what a healthy Baker Mayfield can do. 
and it's better than what a healthy Sam Darnold can do, even though they were both number one picks, blah, blah, blah. It, it, a healthy Baker Mayfield is a double-digit winner in the NFL in the right system. So I think it's part of just learning the system. So they've, they've got a way better outlook than the Steelers do. <laughs> Without a doubt, the worst one is the Steelers. I mean, there is no winner in the Trubisky, Pickett, Rudolph battle royal that's happening somewhere <laughs> outside of Pittsburgh right now. It's obviously the worst one. I actually think Baker wins that job for Carolina pretty easily, and and I hope that he does and plays well as their starter. Seahawks, you're right. You know, they're rebuilding. Neither one of those guys is any good. I think if you really want to lose games, you probably go with Drew Locke, though. That would be my <laughs> choice. <laughs> But let's head out west because there has been noise throughout this week about Matt Stafford having some serious elbow injuries uh, out there in Rams camp. John Wolford is the backup. Last year he threw four passes. One of them was an interception. How worried should the Super Bowl champs be? <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty worried. Twenty-five <laughs> percent of the passes will be picked. <laughs> Not good. Not good. I don't know the extent of, of Stafford's injury. I mean, this time of year, it's anything that comes up, like you're just going to err on the side of caution, right? Especially with a proven veteran like Matt Stafford. Like, all right, sit down. We do not need yeah, he to doesn't play have to do a in these thing. preseason right. games. Because when week one rolls around, I'm pretty sure he still knows the offense and how to take a snap and where to find his guys, right? His checkdowns are going to be fine. Uh, but if it's a serious injury, that's a problem because they don't have depth at all at the quarterback position. So if I was a Rams fan, I'd be concerned if they start coming out like, all right, this is a more serious injury and is going to require surgical intervention or some amount of time out. I don't think I can add anything more eloquently than Phil just did about this scenario, other than if it is something serious and you have Wolford or whatever his name is, you can always just look at the fact that you won a freaking Super Bowl last year and still be happy about it. So yeah, right. Enjoy that. <laughs> and the weather. And things are going just fine in L.A., right? I don't know. I'll be the one to stand up for John Wolford and say, no way, man. There's nothing to worry about. He's stepping in. He's going to cut down that inter interception percentage to something like a third, maybe, or a tenth. I don't know. A third would actually be more. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Math is not my thing. Uh, but I believe in John Wolford. Uh, I think he can make it happen with that defense and the, the weapons around him. So I don't know if you guys have heard, but Tom Brady is coming back at 45 years old. Last year, the Bucks were 13 and four. They lost in the playoffs in a close game to the Rams. They play in the NFC South, which includes the Saints, the Panthers, and the Falcons. So it's not exactly a killer division. They still have weapons like Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Julio Jones, and break that Russell Gage and run. <laughs> Quick Soundgarden reference for you there. <laughs> Are the Bucks still a Super Bowl contender, even with a 45-year-old quarterback? Yeah, it's, it's a terribly weak division. Your quarterback's 45, but still unbelievably great. Goodwin is healthy, which turned out to be his favorite receiver last year. Like, I don't know if you saw his stats. Uh, before he got hurt. And, oh, hey, we added Julio Jones, too, for a one-year deal. So you said they were 12-4, and four, and it's, it's realistic, again, that they that they are that good. 13-4. and four. They played 17 yeah, games last year. So, yep. uh, yeah, I mean, that, that'd be a great division to play football in if you're, if you're Tom Brady. I, I guess, yes, they're a contender simply because I can't imagine them possibly landing anywhere 
outside of the first position in that division. So you're immediately in the playoff dance, right? Like you're, you're there. So Tom Brady didn't show signs of falling off that cliff right. last year either. Right. Like he looked really good. <laughs> and, and in fact, at times better than he did in some previous years when he was in new England. So uh, yeah, they're still a contender in the, in the NFC. They're going to win their division barring some tragic injury to someone who's our age. So that could, <laughs> that could happen any minute now. <laughs> yeah. And there's, and there's no John Wolford <laughs> but, behind him to pick up the slack. So I don't yeah. know what's going to happen. If he gets no, hurt. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, at, at that point, uh, they just have Goodwin take the snap and run. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, they're they're contenders. It'll be interesting to see how the season plays out. Uh, it's it's all about can they compete with the other division leaders? Really, I have been waiting for like four years for Brady to just walk out and fall off the cliff that we saw Ben Roethlisberger fall off of for two seasons. You know, like we saw that guy's play decline to a point where it's just not the same guy anymore, and it's completely understandable. Because you get that old and you take the kind of beating that they have for their careers. And you're right. We, we still haven't seen any of it with Brady. And this team is still loaded, I think. And so I, I guess they still are. That's amazing. With a 45-year-old quarterback, this is a team that can not only make a playoffs, in my mind, but uh, make a deep run. But I guess we'll get to that, those predictions in a couple of weeks. That's it for NFL Storylines. Let's do our first ever See You Next Tuesday award. A look at the <laughs> things that happened in sports <laughs> this week you guys tell me which one of these will receive your see you next tuesday first one nick saban was quoted this week saying that last season was a rebuilding year for alabama last season alabama was 12 and 1 won the sec and went to the championship game and lost next one espn ocho i used to think this was really cool it was on this weekend now i realize it's just knockoff world games <laughs> Finally, the nerd showdown between Live Golf and the PGA escalated to Nerd Fight Club. Live players sued the PGA in federal court, alleging antitrust violations as the PGA seeks to ban Live players from the FedEx Cup and majors going forward. So, who gets your see you next Tuesday? The biggest is Nick Saban, only because, like, seriously, dude, like, come on rebuild because you lost a game and didn't win the and didn't hoist the championship trophy it's a rebuild year whatever you're you're paying players now millions of dollars to come play for alabama and that's fine it's well within the rules these days but yeah that comes off as as rather uh rather c-ty. the pga live thing is is a close second in my mind but there's a lot of legality there that i don't pretend to understand that i'm gonna just let that roll and work itself out so i'm gonna i'm gonna give this see you next tuesday to to our buddy nick the Ocho thing, I, I sampled it for all of like 40 seconds, said that's enough. Um, but it, it it doesn't happen. It's not a powerhouse like Alabama football, and there's not a lot of money behind it like the Live Golf Tour. So uh, it's not on, my, not on my radar. The golf thing, I'm kind of with Phil here too. It's kind of cut, but the same thing is the most cut thing of the week. Man, can you imagine? But then I, maybe I'm jealous. Like if we had a coach who said it was a down year when you win one game. Uh, and yeah, yeah. You're just rebuilding. God, I wish we had rebuilds like that in any of our sports lives. But th- that's the cuntiest thing by far this week. Special level of cunt for the live players to take all that money and then demand to still get to play in the biggest events that the PGA is involved in. I mean, that's just that that, that is a certain level of that needs to be appreciated. 
But the the only reason this segment exists this week is because of the Nick Saban <laughs> quote. I couldn't believe that. Like, you know what you're saying. You, you know how douchey you sound saying it. You know, you know what everybody's going to do when you say it. Oh, it's a rebuilding year. Like, f*** you. Give me a break. We, you guys are awesome. You're going to be awesome again. You're going to be awesome again the year after that. You know, you're loaded with talent. Um, you're a great coach. You're probably the best college football coach that has ever done the job. You don't need to say stupid things like, well, that was just a rebuilding year for us, you know, because we lost one game. Get out of here, Nick Saban. All right, so <laughs> unanimous. See you next Tuesday for Nick Saban, and that feels like a really good place to end this segment, take our final break. We're going to come back off the field and talk about announcers. Welcome back, fellas, to our final segment. We'll head off the field, but not far off the field, only as far as a broadcast booth. Last week, legendary broadcaster Vin Scully died at 94 years old. A Vin Scully stat line, he started calling Dodgers games in 1950 when he was 22 years old. He moved with the team from Brooklyn to L.A. in 1958 and spent a total of 67 fucking years as the voice of the Dodgers. Scully was behind the microphone for 20 no-hitters in three perfect games, Don Larson, Sandy Koufax, and Dennis Martinez. He holds the record for calling 28 World Series, and you can't even list all of the big moments he's called. He called Hank Aaron's record-breaking home run, the Montana to Clark catch, Bill Buckner's Game 6 error, Kirk Gibson's Game 1 home run. Not an understatement at all to say that he was the voice of baseball for more than half a century. And to put this into some perspective, if this show lasts as long as Scully's career, we will be signing off in November 2087, and we will be 110 years old. We can do it. We can do it. Chuck will still be having kids. That's right. <laughs> so I, I know that uh none of us are dodgers fans but we are big enough baseball fans who have crossed paths with vin scully's broadcasts before what memories come to mind for you guys when you think of vin scully it's interesting because the the four you mentioned are the only four really like iconic things that i recall and 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 realizing oh that's 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 vin scully announcing that be it the montana to clark touchdown um hank aaron's record-breaking home run those two i've only seen in highlights that's it like that that was before my time uh our time <laughs> uh the other two though the buckner error and the gibson home run i was watching live when it happened like those two things happened and i was way too young to understand who vin scully was but that was the voice i was listening to talk about what i was just seeing and and what I remember from both of those, as much as I can, one was an 86 and one was an 88. So, you know, pretty young kid, but huge baseball fan at that point and watched them both. What I remember is this is going to seem like an oversimplification, but Vin Scully shut up. He shut up and let the sport tell the story. And then he added to it, which no one does these days. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think that happens nowadays, but some other iconic broadcasters did that same kind of thing where they were just like, all right, this is amazing. And I'm going to be quiet for a little bit right now because we're going to all just drink this in. Listening to him call anything, specifically some of the Dodger stuff, the way he did it made, and I'm going to try to say this correctly, made it sound like he was talking with you, not at you, like you were part of it. Hmm. He had a really welcoming voice and it's a weird way to describe somebody's voice 
um, because usually and he had a phenomenal set of pipes, but a lot of times they're big and baritone and overbearing voices. And uh, his just kind of complemented the way he called the game. It just kind of kind of seemed matter of fact sometimes. And that's what I appreciate about it. And I'm, I'm with Phil, too, of those four things like the Gibson thing. It's because it's one of the, the greatest home runs in the history of baseball. And it always shows up if you YouTube like great sports clips like that's that's in it. Uh, and Phil's right. The fact that he let it breathe and let the moment kind of happen where yeah. most broadcasters are afraid of silence of them not talking. The fact that he let it happen. But hearing him talk, he, he sounded like a friend most of the time. When he, whenever you heard him, whenever you heard him call a game, I, I read a lot of stuff on Wikipedia today about him. I had no idea about some of the stuff he did that he was calling TV and radio and he was the voice of Major League Baseball and he called a game and then flew to call wherever the Dodgers are playing, like in Houston, and that game went into extra innings. So he just went to the stadium and it went 22 innings and he called like 11 of them after he called nine innings in another state. Uh, so it's a, yeah, a guy who started in, when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn and he still ended up calling it in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah. Amazing. It's an amazing career. Just a different world. He started calling games for them when he was 22 years old. There are no... 22 year old major league baseball announcers out there you know it's impossible to get that that job that's that is that job is harder to get than it is to get on the mound in a major league baseball game yeah, yeah. i've heard scully so many times and and heard him so much as we were growing up and stuff like that because i think he did do like the like sunday afternoon baseball whatever the national broadcast was or something like that he was always doing those games so you heard him a lot but when he really hit me was when i traveled to my first duty station in the army in barstow california and for the first week i didn't have a place to live i was just living in this absolutely terrible hotel in barstow which is not a city with a lot going on and i didn't know anything about what was going on because i just gotten there and so every night i would just come down from my room to the mexican restaurant in the hotel lobby and i'd sit at the bar and the Dodgers game would be on every single night, and the bartender would have the sound on. And so I'd sit there with this bartender, and we'd just watch the Dodgers and just listen to Vin Scully call a game. And there was just something that was so entertaining about just listening to him talk and the type of stories he told about players and how he weaved them into just calling the game. Like, he's in the middle of the story, and then he's like, oh, strike three, that'll sit him down, and we'll move on to the next bat. And it's just, God, he was so much fun to listen to and just such a joy to, like, watch a game and, and have him involved. It was really a special guy that I don't think we see anymore. I don't think they make that guy anymore. That, that's not how guys broadcast games in any sport anymore. Vin Scully, really, really cool. And, and I really enjoyed my time living in Southern California and getting to experience Dodger games, not because I cared at all about the Dodgers, but because I liked listening to Vin Scully call them. So let's try to do something impossible and pick the best call in a sporting event. And I'm going to limit it to our lifetimes because it's impossible enough to do it just in our lifetimes. It's extra super impossible to do it if you go forever. Um, so Giants win the pennant is out. Uh, Hank Aaron's home run record is out. Down goes Frazier is out. All of those happened before we were born. So here's the list. I admit it may not be right. There may be more. There may be things that I've left off, but this is what the best I could do. 1980 men's hockey wins the gold. Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? And I think the best part that people forget is that right after that, he yells, yes. <laughs> yeah, I do believe in them. <laughs> I like that one. 
David Ortiz, Game 4, 2004, ALCS against the Yankees, his walk-off home run. Joe Buck's calling it, and uh, it was an extra inning game that went really, really late. He just says, we will see you later tonight. And if you go back and watch that highlight, Buck lets that one breathe too. He hits the home run, and he lets him get almost around the bases before he says anything else. Next one, Gibson's home run. We've already talked about it from Scully. And he has the line, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. Next one, uh, the Flutie Hail Mary is Brett Musburger. Flutie flushed right, throws it down, caught by Phelan, and then he screams, I don't believe it. Next one is another Scully one. It's the Buckner error. And he says, little roller up first base behind the bag. It gets through Buckner, and, and, the, and the Mets win that game. Honorable mention, May 7th. 2016 Bartolo Colon hits the only home run in his career in his 16th season. Please go find that on YouTube and watch it. It's hilarious. <laughs> so take a shot. Which one of those, or if I've left something off that's glaring, let me know. But which one of those do you think was the best call of your lifetime? I don't think you've left anything off that's glaring because to me, there's, there's only one that stands above all and it's of, all radio calls or TV calls of all time, and it's Do You Believe in Miracles? Not just because of the scenario, the situation. If you listen to that broadcast, and you can find the whole thing on YouTube, like he calls a unbelievably great game, especially for a country that's not super into hockey, uh, it, even in 2020, let alone 1980. People were cheering for that team for different reasons. It wasn't for the sport, but it's brilliant. It is a brilliant call. Uh, and I remember that he said yes. I, I knew, that he, knew that he said yes. But he builds the drama so much when he's counting down from like five minutes yeah. left in the game, you know, like two minutes. It's that one. It doesn't matter where I hear it, when I hear it. It could be in the movie Miracle. It could be in a commercial. It could be on YouTube. I still get chills every time I hear that call. It is no doubt Al Michaels call in his inner monologue answering his own question. <laughs> it is no doubt because that is something they made Rocky movies about in Hollywood and he got to try his best to end the Cold War in real time <laughs> on the ice <laughs> with USA Hockey, right? We were only three when that happened, so I certainly didn't see it live. And I have listened to it and seen it hundreds of times since. And it is just an iconic call. And it's a whole country. It's improbability. It's all of that. And the way he calls it is amazing. Oh, so nobody that's, saw that's it live. It was tape delayed. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Back in 1980, no one, yeah, well, yeah, people that yeah. were there saw it live, but they that's didn't true. get to listen to Al yeah. Michaels. Yeah. <laughs> like they just saw it, had their own inner monologue. <laughs> but nobody came up with something as good as do you believe in miracles? No, <laughs> they probably answered their own questions, but not that one. <laughs> I understand like the massive significance of that game and that call and how famous it is, but I'm going to lean towards the Gibson home run. I think it was the first major sporting moment that I experienced in real time. You know, I mean, we were probably only what, like 11 years old. And I remember mm. my parents going to bed and me staying up to watch the game. Cause I think it was a Friday or a Saturday night game, one of the world series against the A's. Uh, and so I didn't have to go to school the next morning. So they let me stay up to watch it. And it was amazing. Like the play is amazing. Like the whole thing around it with Gibson can't play and he's hurt and he comes out, but I'll tell you what L Michaels probably had some time to think about what he was going to say, you know, at the end of that game, if they won. Do you believe in miracles? There's no way Vince Scully could have had any idea how that game was going to end or that Kirk Gibson was going to be involved. And I think that means that on the fly, 
he came up with in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened, which is a beautiful line. How the f*** did you come up with that <laughs> on the fly in this amazingly <laughs> exciting moment? I would have just been screaming like, yeah, there's something stupid, man. I'd have never been able to come up with like such a beautiful line. So not just because we are you know, taking some time tonight to honor Vin Scully, but just because I, I think that was just such an iconic sports moment and he handled it so beautifully. I'm giving it to Vin Scully this time, although I take nothing away from Al Michaels in that in that call of the, of the hockey wing because that was huge. Why don't we take this a little bit closer to home? Let's talk Cleveland broadcasters in our lifetimes again, and let's play favorites. So we'll start with the Indians slash Guardians. On radio, Herb Score was the announcer for more than 30 years, 1968 to 1997. Tom Hamilton now has more than 30 years. He started in 1990 and is still going today. They each kind of went through partners throughout the years, but obviously those two were kind of like the mainstays on the radio for the Guardians. TV is a somewhat different story. 1984, Reggie Rucker and Joe Tate called the season of Tribe Baseball. What? (laughs) What? Reggie Rucker. Uh, um, 1985 to 2001 on TV, it was Jack Corrigan and Mike Hegan were together for a really long time calling games. And in 1990 is when they actually started to split coverage between the local WUAB broadcast and they added a cable broadcast. And 1990 was when Rick Manning shows up for the first time. And he is now the longest tenured TV broadcaster in Cleveland history. I'm sorry, in Cleveland Guardians Indians history. The Browns, weird, because you don't get local guys calling TV in the NFL. So it's all radio guys. But for a long time, it was Nev Chandler and Doug Deacon. And then it was Casey Coleman and Doug Deacon. And then for a long time, it was Jim Donovan and Doug Deacon. (laughs) So you can pick any of those or just Doug Deacon. (laughs) For the Cavs, before we get to the obvious choice for the Cleveland Cavs, some interesting names have done radio and TV for the team. Jim Jones, Quinn Buckner, Matt Gukas, Greg Gumbel called games at one point for the Cavs for one season. Of course, the granddaddy of them all was Joe Tate. He was on TV or radio or both from 1970 until 2011 calling Cavs games. All of those guys during our lifetimes, mainstays calling games for our favorite teams. Who is your favorite? Man, Hmm. football has become so visual. And so, you know, like I'm always seeking out TV uh, for it, not to take anything away from, Nev Chandler was a great, I mean, we were young, but he was great at it. Yeah. And I think Donovan is super underrated because run William run will forever live in my brain. Like there's certain calls he made that are fantastic. Joe Tate was a different kind of animal too. Like a guy who kind of did it. It seems like he did it mostly by himself. He did. Um, Yeah. yeah. He was a, he was a single guy a lot of that time, which is amazing. I think Rick Manning does a, a brilliant job uh, as well for as long as he's been doing it. But Hamilton probably for me, only because even if I'm watching it on TV, I can't wait till somebody syncs the audio of Hammy's call, like his home run calls blow me away sometimes because it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Like whenever I hear him get beyond excited when he says a swing and a drive, like I just kind of like, I don't tense up, but it's like, I stand up like, damn, this is, this is going to be great. Uh, so I think Probably in our lifetime, just again, because 
baseball still plays well on radio at all times. It always has and it always will. So it's probably him for me. He does such a nice job, especially on his big moments and big calls. The only downside to Hamilton is he gets that excited sometimes and it's just a fly out to the warning track. <laughs> <laughs> that can get you frustrated if you've just stood up at the table you're sitting at with your family or something to celebrate a home run. This is impossible. First of all, how Austin Carr isn't on that list, I have no idea. I mean, come on. Yeah, and you know what? Mike Fratello <laughs> was doing games, I think, for a while, yeah. too, and I didn't yeah. include him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. So yeah. all kidding aside, Austin Carr, yeah, it's hard. And Austin Carr is kind of that grandfather announcing games that really doesn't know what's going on and we all laugh at but love as the Absolutely season goes on. So that's yeah. fun. Man, this is this is really hard because I, for baseball, yeah, I remember Herb Score and when Herb Score and Tom Hamilton shared the booth. You know, yep. there was that overlap, and, and then Hammy took over. Tom Hamilton is really, really good at calling baseball at, at, at the pacing of the game. So I guess where I, in my mind, like I'm thinking about Hamilton and how he calls a baseball game, which is a lot of dead space, right? Like there's just a lot, unlike the other sports where there's constant action in football and basketball. So Joe Tate would take an, take a basketball game where there's no, there, there's just action the whole time and call it very calmly. And then had his go-to moments with big plays, but it was a very calm, almost soothing voice to hear on the radio in a game that was frenetic, right? Whereas Hamilton takes a game that is really, there's a lot of dead time. And to Chuck's point, he will, he will say something. I get excited for fly ball outs when I'm listening to Tom <laughs> Hamilton because of the way he calls it. Because from his vantage point in the moment, he thinks that has a chance. That has a chance, and he's going to call it like every other home run that he's called, be it in a World Series or a game in June. And it's, it's just exciting. I don't know how to answer this. Who is my favorite? I guess I'll go with Hamilton. I'll give him the nod because I love baseball. And I, the call of baseball, and we've been talking about this tonight with Vin Scully, you've got to tell stories. There's just there's a lot of time to fill. You have to know the game. You have to explain things that are kind of behind the, the curtain a little bit, but you got to tell stories and you got to keep the audience engaged in a game that otherwise could be pretty slow for most of the time. Whereas football and basketball, it's it's action. It's action-packed. There's some nostalgia to baseball on the radio. I remember being a little kid and my parents sending me to bed at night and like keeping like a little transistor radio under my pillow and listening to Herb score call games and like falling asleep. How old are you? <laughs> well, I mean, you got to remember, man, in like you're talking about like the late 80s. Yeah. Um, it was a different time. They weren't broadcasting yeah. 162 yeah. baseball games on TV at the time. We were lucky to get like 30 games a year. You, you said transistor radio. That's Isn't that yes. what it was? I don't know. It <laughs> had batteries in it. I don't know. It was like a yeah. little thing. <laughs> you Danko you don't know <laughs> I think it was a transistor radio you guys you guys didn't have outlets in Chardon <laughs> oh we I mean I mean I suppose we did I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you did I stayed at your house exactly yeah same it place nice. it was nice <laughs> open floor plan it was beautiful <laughs> anyway um I, I remember like going to bed, listening to Herb score call games. I'll never forget that guy's voice. Um, I go with Hamilton too. You know, you love Joe Tate and I'm with you, Chucky. I think Jim Donovan's underrated, but Hamilton is not only awesome, but I think he's also call, called some of our favorite sports moments in our entire lives. You know, like any success the Indians slash guardians have had since we've been alive almost Hamilton's called it. And so he's gotten an opportunity to do a lot of huge games and, be a part of those 
those big moments that we've experienced. But it doesn't surprise me that we all lean towards baseball radio guys. I think there's just something special about baseball on the radio that if you're a baseball fan, that, that never gets old. It's never a bad way to experience a game, I don't think. Tom Hamilton, congratulations. You win. Best broadcaster ever <laughs> in Cleveland. But boys, <laughs> we are out of time. I am out of questions for now. And we just did the whole show without mentioning that Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson broke up. Mm. With that news... That somehow is really great news for lots of wildly attractive and single women. I hope you guys have a great week. And let's get together and do this again real soon. Absolutely. <laughs> It'll never, never make sense. Never. wrap another week with a running <clears throat> other guy <laughs> uh, ditto I'm, I'm going over as well <clears throat> on Thursday Goodell appointed the kid that dressed up as Ron Washington to hear the appeal who's going to get that reference except for us that's fantastic <laughs> Oh, did you see the picture of him? Yeah, that's yeah. why I'm laughing. Because, it, yeah, it's like Ron Washington Jr. <laughs> so. What do you do with all those bobbleheads? Because they have to be made already. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. So they think they're the world country. They send the t-shirts yeah. where it says like Cleveland, Cleveland yeah. Indians, Cleveland Indians, 1997 Crazy. world, world series champions. Yeah. Right. Oh man. <laughs> I don't know if they need bobbleheads like they need clothes, but all right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> How do the bobbleheads help? My, I don't know. They man, lighten the mood. Put another players. <laughs> all right. What? Well. Oh God. You know, I actually feel like you I have. have rebounded nicely during this break, Wonderful. and I'm ready to get started. Mm. Let's have a good time, good. fellas. Good, man. Yes. Ready to go? <laughs> I already am, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Is battling Drew Locke, who is 9-15 and 15 as a starter? Can't remember whose turn it is. Yeah. Chuck? It's, it's mine. Um, Seattle doesn't concern me. I don't care. Five-year-old quarterback. I can't remember who it's fine. it is. <laughs> yeah, Go it's, ahead, it's a terribly weak division. 